I'm Dan. I'm Lou, and together we are Casting Views. An uncle and nephew chatting on random topics, some heavy, some fun, but we aim to amuse. Don't miss out, don't delay. Subscribe to Casting Views today. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Good Pods. Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? LA. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Car? I do have a car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you weekly through a sea of hidden gems and obscure films that are destined for rediscovery. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is episode 28 of the Cult Worthy Classic. Now today, I've got a very special guest, my friend Ian of the Cult Connections podcast, joins me to talk about the 1964 Japanese horror classic, Oni Baba, directed by Kanito Shindo. Now, this is my very first fully foreign language film on the show, so there aren't a lot of clips or sound bites because they're in Japanese, and unless you speak it, it doesn't really transfer well into this audio format. But the film is fantastic, it's on HBO Max right now, or you can rent it on pretty much any streaming app. It is just so influential and just an excellent piece to put into your cinematic library. So without further ado, my friend Ian of the Cult Connections podcast, enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Today, I have a very special guest. He was on episode three of the Cult Worthy Classic. Here we are on episode 28. That just shows how fast time is flying. I'm just so happy to have him on the show again. One of my favorite cult film podcasters. We have like this little cult film trifecta. I would say it's our podcast, his podcast, and our friend Chris over at the Cult Film Companion. Always sharing some of the best films that we can find out there to bring to our listeners. My friend Ian of the Cult Connections podcast. Ian, how are you doing? I I am very well. And uh, wow, I can't believe that uh, you've actually made so many episodes since uh, the last time we spoke. That's amazing. I, I was back in February that you and I spoke last on this show. We did a couple spots over on your show when we had the, like the little the cult film gathering, which was a lot of fun. We need to do that again. But yeah, the, yeah. Sh- the show's grown. It's had a lot of fun guests. And finally, getting you back on the show, because we've been talking about doing this episode for a while. Thankfully, mm-hmm. the schedule's lined up and we were able to finally do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, wow, you picked a great film. This is, uh, this is a great one for us to this will tackle lots to talk about here. Lots to talk about. And it's the first fully foreign language film I've done on the show. I did do a Russian horror film called V back in the early days of the show, but it was a dubbed version. And I finally got like the undubbed version, which I actually prefer. But yeah, this one's going to be a, a challenge to talk about because, hey, it's in a completely different language. There may be some nuances that are lost on us. So I'm really excited to see what your interpretations were and what mine were. How I found this film was back in like the 90s, I was really getting into samurai films. I was getting into Kurosawa films. I was getting into some of the films from like the later 70s, like Lone Wolf and Cub and the Hanzo series. 
So I was just having this taste for Japanese cinema. And in my local library, they just had a section of, you know, foreign language films. I just started grabbing anything that had a Japanese name and I grabbed this one and it was the Criterion version of it. I did not know what to expect because the cover was just this very demonic looking samurai mask. And I went in blind and it's become one of my favorite foreign language films, maybe even like favorite films of all time. How did you feel about it on this first watch? Um, I, I I came in obviously quite sort of fresh there to this. I knew, but kind of out with that, I must admit, I didn't really know sort of too much about about um, uh, the, the film. So I was really quite quite sort of bowled over by it. I didn't I didn't really know what what to expect. I didn't know the um, the director all that well, or you know too much about it so and and reading little sort sort of snippets of it little sort of plot um uh, their sort of summaries <clears throat> really doesn't actually do the film uh, their sort of justice either so oh, agreed. um yeah so it, so it was really nice actually to go in you know fresh their sort of eyes not knowing what I would get and uh, they're sort of presented with this lovely um this sort of poem of a film in many ways. It's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely poetic. So the film that we're talking about today is 1964's Onibaba. Directed by Kanito Shindo. And he made another film that was very similar in tone to this called Kuraniko, which I like as well, about demonic cat spirits, about trials of war and how things kind of just fall apart in the outskirts societies where people are kind of left to fend for themselves. And you get these weird kind of like power dynamics that happen of lords that really aren't noblemen at all. They just happen to have enough power and enough men to consider themselves lords of certain areas. It's a really interesting dynamic. I don't know much of my Japanese history, but with this film and with that film, it really makes you kind of feel for the main characters of doing whatever you have to do to survive and the funny irony of some of the mother's ideas of like what is a sin and what is not when they're practically killing people and stealing from them (laughs) but then other things are considered sinful to her and we'll get into all that but just to talk about the director really fast he had a fascinating career he made like 48 films he made his last film at age 88 and he died at 100 he just kept making films from the early days of like the 1950s till now when he was trying to become a director, there were so many directors, this was like pre-war, that he didn't didn't think he was going to make it. So he decided to become a screenwriter instead. And during the war, when like cities were empty, he went to one of the film studios he was trying to get a job at, and there was no one there. So it was kind of like that episode of The Twilight Zone, where Burgess Meredith has the library all to himself, and he just wants to read his books before his glasses break after the world has ended. It was kind of like this. Shindo spent months in this abandoned film studio reading scripts, teaching himself how to use equipment, running projectors. He almost had this studio to himself. So it was a really fascinating way to kind of get his career started. 
and get all these different ways that would form him into the filmmaker that he became, which is an amazing filmmaker in my opinion. And I just thought that was a cute little piece of history to how he became who he was. It's fascinating. I think um, the Japanese cinema, but Japanese cinema post um, their war as well. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, Obviously, sort of after that, very a very sort of vibrant sort of time for for the for Japanese um their sort of cinema, uh, they're productive. You know, there's so many films out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so many genre films, so so many different, you know, things. A lot of uh, they're sort of amazing highbrow. They're sort of cinema as well. Often, often, and you know, and for many of us, these are the films that we know a bit more about because, as as uh, people who like film, I think perhaps we we might sort of gravitate towards some of the more highbrow sort of films and think, well, they're sort of Kurosawa. Yeah, right, I'll you know try and watch as many. As many sort of films as of of their his, but um, it is it is a, a sort of amazing their time. I think you know Japanese their society in many ways they sort of benefited after the war as being a chance for them to actually rebuild, mm-hmm. um, and and their sort of cinema uh, they sort of reflects that as well. So I I I am no expert. But it is a it is a world of film that absolutely fascinates me, and it's one that like I feel like I know bits and pieces of like the most important films that you read about in film books or that you hear talked about by film scholars. There are times where I feel like I've barely even scratched the surface of all the amazing cinema that was made during this time that we haven't even gotten to our shores yet. You know, you still find them maybe on bootleg VHS or maybe you find them on streaming sites. That you didn't know they existed, and and this this is kind of one of them. Like it has its audience, it definitely has a a notoriety to it. But I just don't think enough people knew what it was to really be fascinated by by what it actually is, which is a perfect blend of, I'd say, horror, suspense, but also there's political and social undertones to it, which we'll get into. I felt this had a very kind of like Greek tragedy or Greek mythology feel to it. How did you feel? Did you, did you kind of get that idea to it? It's interesting that one. I mean, I think as well, it's uh, you know, it's a, <laughs> in some ways it's a small film. Mm-hmm. It's a in many ways it's a very vast film, but I mean, you could see it working as a as a, a, a they sort of play. Yeah, you know, I could actually see it actually being being sort of staged and staged really well. But uh, it's in, and they're sort of apparently based on you know sort of Japanese uh, folklore as well, yeah, which like I find fable. absolutely fascinating. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, so fable, and in many ways, sort of plot wise, it's quite um, it's quite light. There's maybe not a huge amount going on, but it packs in lots of things to think, things that really grab you. Yeah, and there's practically maybe like six or seven people in the entire film, so. I like the way you put that. It's a small film when it comes to character and when it comes to cast, but it's a vast film in just the way it's shot in these never-ending swamps and fields of just high grass and reeds. You don't see mountainsides. You don't see any other kind of landscape except for like this swamp and this eternal field of grass and weeds, which 
it, it kind of has almost like a feeling of purgatory where these characters are, yes, living this, this hell of an existence in the middle or post-war that seems to become some kind of like feudal war, but there really is nothing to their life other than living and surviving in this vast landscape of practically nothing, which I thought was a very interesting way for us to get in touch with these characters because we don't have any other distractions. And the way that the film is shot, you really see more grass and more of these reeds than you do people. And I think that's fascinating. It really puts you in an isolated mood as you're watching this film. You know, we're talking about uh, their sort of characters here who are basically hiding, you know, they are hiding away. Mm -hmm. Now, this is at home, and they are farmers, but um, these vast, vast sort of reeds means that they can hide away. Um, and, I, and I think such a, such a great way to, to sort of emphasise the their setting in a way so so it's it's in war war their time we know there's there's a there's civil war going on all of the men or most most of the the men have actually left so gone off there to, to sort of war but it does it it leaves this this sort of void and emptiness and in the actual setting just sort of you know you know fits that so so well it is a place that's actually full of things life so yeah. you know the, the 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 reeds and water and saying that you don't hear a lot of say sort of bird song or there is a, a glimpse of some uh, this sort of fish the river is probably the most lively sort of aspect of 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 the the landscape but it is a very sort of quiet eerie in a way mm -hmm. you know very sort of eerie landscape and uh it really suits they're perfect i would say actually yeah. And to me, I think one of the things that makes this film so fascinating is that it's told through the eyes of two female characters. They don't even have names in, in the credits or anything. It's just older woman, younger woman. Older woman played by Nobuko Otawa, younger woman played by Jitsuko Yoshimura. They have a lot of weight of this film on their shoulders because it mostly is the two of them either out in the fields or in their little hut which looks like the most just miserable place to spend an existence. There's no light, there's no windows, and it feels very confined. It's probably maybe like 12 feet by 12 feet. And not only do the two of them share that space, what kind of starts a story off is, as you said, all the men have been recruited to war, so they actually lived in that hut with the son slash husband of the younger girl, all three of them in that little cabin. And what you get the idea of is that the mother character was never fully approving of this younger girl who was the wife of the husband. You get the idea that the mother, maybe this some kind of Oedipus complex there, that's why I was mentioning like the Greek tragedy stuff. There is a lot of conflict between the two of them. And she's always putting her down like, you were never good enough for my son, you were never pretty enough, you never any of this. And the two of them are relying on each other to survive because there is no commerce. All the men are gone. They're probably not the best at fishing or hunting. So how they are surviving is they are literally murdering stray soldiers, stray peasants, people who are fleeing the war, stealing their stuff and selling it to a merchant just to survive on whatever 
rice or millet this guy gives them to eat. That is their existence, and there's no telling how long this existence is going to last. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is it. And, um, you know, like you say, it's 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 a great way to show the the sort of horror of of sort of war or what other people who are left after it. So 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 like you say, all of the men have have their left for war. You know, there's not much left. Um, but it does. It shows you how you have to cling on and and those sort of lengths that people go to. You know, and things that we see, you know, that we still see now. So, you know, if we think of uh, of these two women in in their in their reed bed, mm-hmm. and we think of um, the U- Ukraine, say wheat fields that are sitting empty because you know no one's there to actually you know farm farm them They're just now, and you know the struggles that the people through just uh, you know just to get by and. Uh, uh, they do it in a very um, inventive way, as it were. Yes. Um, you know, and and it and it does actually make you think. Well, what would we do? I've lived a very a very fortunate life of not having, you know, experienced any sort of war at any sort of conflict. But you know, what would you do? You know, just to get by. Speaking of that interesting way of how they dispose of these wanderers and these escaped soldiers who have fled the war. They know these fields like the back of their hand. They know exactly which direction they are, how to get around. So at the beginning, you've got these these two warriors who have escaped from the, the war. They are in conflict with each other. They're chasing each other through the reeds. You think that they might be our two protagonists when out of nowhere, they are murdered by these two women and their bodies are thrown into this massive hole in the middle of the field after they've picked all of their swords and their armor and whatever money they might have had, and they're tossed into this hole. This is just daily life for them. There's this old merchant that lives in a cave. They visit him often. He has some kind of business going on on the side, too, because I'm not sure if you noticed, there was actually a woman in the cavern on one of the scenes when they go to visit him in the bed, and she's nude. And I never noticed it the first time I watched the film. So it made me wonder if he also kind of has like a brothel there as well, where he's selling sexual services from this woman there. Like there are so many things going on in in this film. It almost makes me think that if one of the women died before the climax of the film, would that be the fate of them? Where they had no other choice to become a prostitute or a sexual servant to to this merchant character. Like again, there's so many layers to this film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, you know, like you say, when you're faced with this, you know, situation, what would you do when the main male, uh, their sort of character comes along, that then opens up a bit of sort of sexual, uh, their sort of tension, but but also says, right, how do we get by? What can we use there to get to comfort us in in the, the middle of this? Like their war as well. I think it's, uh, yeah. Um, I think that the film probably asks a lot of, uh, you know, um, their sort of questions or those questions could be told in many lots of different ways. We don't get any any sort of answers. Mm-hmm. You know, you could probably, there's sort of 20 films from this one. Yeah. You know, about, you know, where where does the story go? What actually happens to the, the these uh, people? Um, 
I am sure that there will be films that actually do do cover this uh, this uh, time. So this is the 1400s. This what Japan was in in this you know, war films, uh, they're sort of samurai films. And when you talk about that male character, so this guy actually has a name. His name is Hachi. And he was a neighbor, and I guess we're kind of assuming an acquaintance or friend of the husband and son of our main pair of characters. He shows up out of nowhere and instantly kind of just, like, makes himself at home, starts eating their food, and they just want to know what happened to their son, what happened to the girl's husband. And he gives us this story that the two of them fled together and were caught by a nobleman trying to steal food. And while Hachi escaped, the, the husband and son was killed. And he was the only one that survived. And they kind of leave that ambiguous of whether or not, are we to assume that Hachi actually killed this guy? Or is his story... Is his story accurate? Is his story true? What What did you think? What was your opinion on that? Was he lying or was he telling the truth? Hmm, this is an interesting one because um, I think this sort of performance-wise, it's difficult. They, uh, their sort of life in many ways, he's quite a bit sort of hammy, maybe. You know, he hams it up a little bit. He's a bit more... Um, Animated, I would uh, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Animated indeed. So his uh, story makes sense, but but also, you know, you do what what you have to, you know, do just to stay uh, sort of alive. Yeah. You know, it's very open-ended, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that you take away from this film is that everybody, everybody in this film does horrible things. But none of it comes from a place of evil. It all comes from a place of just base survival. And where the film takes an interesting turn is that Hachi is... In my opinion, he is meant in the story and by the filmmaker to be unattractive, almost repulsive. Like the guy has bad teeth. He, like you said, his he has an animated personality, but it's not one that is likable. If this was like your neighbor, it'd be the neighbor that you just wouldn't want to lend anything to or invite over for tea. Like he is not the guy you want to even associate with. But we are living in a period right now where there is absolutely nobody and there are no men. The son is dead. The husband is dead. There starts to become this this shift from basic survival needs to human needs and desire needs. That's where like we start getting to this weird juxtaposition of where we're forgiving these characters for committing the sins of murder and theft because it's out of survival, what really now comes into play is the fact that the mother, who thinks that the daughter-in-law is is unworthy and kind of says that she wasn't good enough for the son, she's seeing now that there is a sexual desire between her and Hachi. Hachi keeps coming along, keeps giving her fish, keeps giving her like the the sexy eyes, the mom knows what's going on. So she tries to put the kibosh on it right away saying, you know, you're, you're a slut. You're a whore. If you do anything with this man, when you're not married, it would be a disgrace to the memory of my son and your husband. But there's two things going on here. The younger woman has these sexual needs and sexual desires. Obviously Hachi does too, because 
in his mind, he's the only male in this area. So these women now are rightfully his. But there's also, I think, like you were saying, that need to do anything to survive. It makes a lot more sense on a baser instinct for the younger girl to be with a man who's stronger, maybe more protective and more resourceful than this old woman. And the old woman knows that. So that's why she's trying to put the kibosh because she can't survive on her own without the girl. So how, how, how can she keep this from happening? So she tries to do shame at first, and then it goes even deeper into the depths of what she's willing to do. How did you feel about that whole kind of dynamic that was going on? I think it does absolutely drive the, uh, the this story forward in a way. I mean, we have a very, a very lyrical film where, um, you know, not a lot, well, I mean, lots of things happen, but you know, though this isn't a fast sort of paced film. No, you know, you know, by any stretch. So, so we get to see the the their characters go about their sort of business um, in this, you know, setting in 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 the um, their reads. So, so this this uh, this uh, part of it does it does just drive that that sort of. St- story forward it make it makes sense um that these elements they sort of come in but again it shows you what what sort of lens or you know what will happen if my daughter-in-law goes off you know what what will happen there to myself and but again it 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 then shows us the the the, the ex dreams that, that the people go to so for the next part of it um, and we start to get into the slightly, this sort of supernatural, mm-hmm. uh, this sort of spirit element, but um, it's actually the unconscious sort of thoughts coming out, or uh, this sort of character we will meet shortly. I think, uh, you know, the great thing about horror cinema as well, and and is that it, it allows us to 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 sort of represent a very basic sort of you know fears and one thing i like about how the story is told is it does take that shift into horror but the filmmaker is very very brilliant about letting us know that this is not any kind of supernatural horror there's nothing supernatural going on all of the supernatural ideas and characteristics are brought forward by the characters themselves. It's it's quite brilliant if you ask me. So after like this whole middle section of anytime the old woman goes out to sell the goods to the merchant to get rice or millet or runs errands, the young woman runs at full speed through the reeds to get to Hachi's <laughs> hut so they can have their quick little session and then runs back. And it's obvious what she's doing and the and the the mother knows this. While she's out on one of these little escapades in the rain, the mother is confronted by a man who is a escaped samurai warrior who's wearing a very disturbing demonic mask. And the mask, I guess, is part of his his power. The mask is part of his intimidation in battle. And as he enters this hut, you know, he asks for food, he asks for shelter. But he does it very menacingly. It's like, if you don't help me, I'll just take what I want. And that introduction is really frightening, too, because she hears something from outside. And as she kind of puts her ear to the door, a blade shoots 
through the door of the hut, nearly stabbing her. And that's like the first jump scare of the movie where all this time we've spent it in this very kind of, like you said, poetic, almost artistically moody setting where everything is really slow paced. Everything is very tension building. And now as we go into this third act with this introduction of this character, now we have the jump scares. Now we have the true terror of just this menacing presence. Were you expecting that kind of introduction to this guy? Because like you really don't even get a hint that he's there. It's very surprising when he comes in. Yeah, I didn't think this was was they saw a coming. I, you know, having read some of the plot plot sort of bits, I knew I, I knew something did happen, but not not sort of quite like this. But um, it's uh, they're sort of effective, but. They're sort of effective again in in the situation that that we find ourselves. So the so the samurai, their sort of character, the the, the general or or whatever, or sort of nobleman, yeah. how he how he sort of styles himself, and he doesn't. He sort of styles himself as a as a as a big um, this sort of city hotshot in a way, and he he sort of comes along, but there's a this sort of dismissive attitude towards. The, the the woman it's like well you know, I am I am the Lord you are you are the the sort of common sort of person so you're you you are not you know just gonna do what I want and uh, and and he tells all of these sort of things about himself you know the way he wears there the mask mm-hmm. um they sort of like slightly late later on that actually that's uh, that's a load of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, he says, "I'm the most true. handsome nobleman in Kyoto." <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, haha. You know, and he's and he's not. He's he's actually scarred. He looks like he's sort of burnt. It shows the the sort of horrors of of sort of war. Actually, are in a wearing sort of masks to get to get by. You know, to yeah. actually put on a, a sort of acting through this awful their situation. You know, but very, very sort of fig- figuratively. Yes, he is as as a, a character who's got this mask on because it hides all of, all of the sort of horror actually that's that's uh, going on. Yeah, and one of the things I think is really fascinating is the ambiguity of this character. We don't know if he is a thief that has stolen this armor. We don't know if he is truly a nobleman or a soldier. That is what I loved about this is that. We don't need to know any of this character's history because he is there to drive the female character's story forward. So she is supposed to lead him out of the reeds because he can't find his way. As conniving as she is, she leads him through the reeds to the hole where they throw all the bodies of the people that they have murdered. And he falls down the hole. She goes down there with a rope, takes his mask, takes all of his stuff to go sell to the merchant, and she gets this idea of how she can keep the daughter from running off to see Hachi whenever she can. This is where it starts taking like the, the horror elements and that element of control to a whole different level. And some of the just most amazing horror filmmaking and cinematography I've seen in films this old and in black and white the mother decides that every time the girl tries to run to Hachi's place at night, she's going to go hide in the reeds because she knows the path. And she puts on the mask. 
So every time the daughter now runs through the reeds, the mother pops out with this mask, and the daughter thinks that there is a demon lurking. And she's been feeding her this whole time about, like, you will go to hell if you have sexual congress out of wedlock. It's, it's, it's kind of like gaslighting her and also preparing for this little play that she's going to be putting on to keep the daughter there. Yeah, it's, it's, I know, and, and again, it's, it's the, does sort of drive that for, forward, but I, I almost wonder if, if, um, if the, the mask itself has, uh, has some sort of latent sort of power. So, as in, rightly for the samurai, their sort of character, we don't, we don't know his, his, their back, back their ground, but, um, was it the mask himself that sort of drove him to, to do some of the not very nice their things, and as we see with with the the mother character, that mask, that sort of horror comes comes from it. So I don't know if we are in a in in a slightly um, this sort of Lord of of the Rings type <laughs> type sort of situation. Yeah. So 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 the one so the the ruling ring. Um, it will give you power, but it will also it will it will it will you know drive you uh, they're sort of crazy and uh, that the mask represents that as well. It's uh, you know you can use the mask for your own lot of ends, but it's it's going to take over. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's the same way that I viewed it. Like the mask, if there is any supernatural forces in this film at work, it's all behind the mask. And like I said, that ambiguity of the samurai, what his real story is, is really interesting. And the mask comes into play with that because when she climbs down into the hole to retrieve the mask off the man, she has a very hard time getting it off. She literally has to pry it off of his head. And when she does, it exposes a horribly scarred and disfigured face. So it leads me to think two things. Number one... There's just something wrong with this mask. When it gets wet, it sticks to your skin and it just pulls your skin off. That is, yeah. that's the reason. That's the logical explanation for this. Or like you said, there is a supernatural force behind this mask where let's say if you are donning the mask, maybe it's meant to give you power in battle. Maybe it's meant to be used for honorable services. It'll give you power if you're doing things honorably. But if you're using it for let's say bad or harm or influence over people, that's when it becomes attached to you and makes your life pretty much a living hell. You are now forced to live in this mask and operate around it. And that is what happens to the mother is that one night when it rains after she's done this scare tactic, when the daughter comes home, she finds the mother hiding in the corner crying. And as she lights the candles around the hut, woman turns around and the mask is stuck to her face. And that's when the charade ends. The daughter realizes that this mother was playing this trick on her this whole time, posing as this demon. And now there's like true conflict between the two of them where they have to either fight, kill each other. They have to work it out somehow. What did you feel about that, that, that whole conflict? Like this conflict could have happened at any time, but it took this to finally let the daughter stand up for herself. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I don't, I don't know if there's a, you know, without knowing the sort of Japanese, uh, their the society sort of too well, but I I do know it is, is a, the sort of culture that I think still to this day draws its uh, uh, their sort of traditions. So 
um, a sort of reverence uh, towards, you know, all older members of um, uh, their society. And I do wonder if if that's uh, if you are there married, obviously the the young woman's husband. We we now think as as their dead, he's not he's not there coming back. But are you part of that family? Can you not actually go somewhere else and you know re remarry or do you know how does how does how does that 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 sort of play into um, their society, uh, they the expects of 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 you, and I do wonder about 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 that. Maybe with sort of Western eyes, we we um, you know view things sort of differently. Or I do wonder if there's actually a lot more layers there to this film that we don't see, you know, because yeah. it's it's not, you know, be because we don't know that world's uh, you know too too well so it works as a great film on so many levels for us but are there, are there even more levels that we that we just don't get yeah and like one of the things that i have heard about japanese culture and again i'm not an expert but they always have had this like you said this honorable tradition that could almost be considered like conservative in a way when it comes to family when it comes to family traditions yet there is also a very heightened sense of eroticism in their culture. It's seen in the anime and the art. It's seen in some of like the fetishes that you see come out of Japan. Yet when it comes to like the family dynamic, there is kind of like a very strict conservative culture to it. It's almost like they're at conflict with each other. And that's how this film plays is because for the mother character to be so against the sexuality of this young woman, the film itself is actually very erotic, even in scenes that don't, feel like they should be erotic you know there is a lot of unveiled nudity just completely ignored like there is no shame with these women they walk around topless at some point they really have no idea of the erotic feelings that we the audience are are getting from them as they are in this film in different states of dress and even like the sexual scenes and encounters between the young woman and Hachi, they are very unerotic. They are not sexy at all. Even though they are having like a sexual congress, there is nothing erotic about it. The eroticism is in the filmmaking. The eroticism is in the framing of these women who, in my opinion, are both very gorgeous women. So again, it's, it's that filmmaker playing with like the juxtaposition of like what the conservative culture and idea of the Japanese people are versus what we are being represented to as the audience. And I think that's brilliant, in my opinion. It's amazing. Having watched some more um, the genre films, especially ones from 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 the sixties and the seventies, I must I must uh, I must say go back further 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 as well though. But um I'm always yeah really struck by the by by the use of of um this sort of nudity and uh, you know and for a westernized and certainly british films it would be uh we're not doing that you yeah. know you know you wouldn't have that that sort of level of of it and it's uh i'm always very sort of struck by that because you know you do think of of the japan as being a a very strict um their society or or a very they're sort of conservative obviously not obviously um obviously we are the the um they're sort of prudish ones when it comes to to uh, they're watching these mm-hmm. uh, these uh, films. Yeah, a few episodes back, I did an episode about uh, Michael Powell's Peeping Tom from 1960. It came out the same year as Psycho, and it was one of the mm-hmm. first films to have any kind of nudity whatsoever. The photographer in the film takes a few nude m- pictures of a model, 
and it caused all sorts of outrage and uproar in the in the British community. The film was banned for a while. This film was banned in the UK as well. And this is 1964, and we are seeing a lot more open nudity in this Japanese film than we would see in American films for at least another five years. It, it is really, like you said, fascinating that like, this conservative culture didn't really shy away from eroticism in its film. And this film, when it came out, was championed as a piece of art, as an important work. No one seemed to really care about the eroticism portrayed in the film, except for the more conservative-minded Western societies. Yeah, I think that 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 just you know sums up about um, more about where where we were and maybe still are, and uh, and not about about the the films that we are watching. I think it uh, I think it definitely says more about us than it does the the uh, film film they makers. And as, we're not yeah. going to give away the ending of the film because I, I think this is a very crucial film for people to see. And it is the most available I think it's been in a long, long time. Like, I remember you could only ever find it on the Criterion DVD or an old Janus Films VHS from back in the day. But now, in the States here, it's on HBO Max. You can rent it on any of the channels. You are looking for a good introduction to Japanese erotic cinema and, and horror. This would be a great introduction for you because... It is nothing like the Kurosawa films. It is nothing like the Samurai films or the Zatoichi films. It's completely different, and it gives you a good insight into some of the other genres that the Japanese filmmakers were were exploring with at the time. You know, it, it wasn't a Japanese crime film or a noir or a, a thriller like you know Kurosawa did with High and Low and things like that. It, it's something very, very unique, and the fact that I feel that this has a lot of influence on a lot of Western films in the future. Let's talk about that for a second, where we start seeing like this dynamic of evil mothers-in-laws, you know, in films. <laughs> there was that one film with Jessica Lange and Gwyneth Paltrow. I think it was called Hush. We've seen bad mother-in-laws in other films, but I would say this is probably like one of the more influential films for Western audiences that a lot of people don't know about of bringing this dynamic of, of a daughter who's lost her husband and now the mother-in-law is in control and their conflict and how that plays out. Yeah. I think for me, I mean, I think my big take from it is, uh, is about how you can tell a, a big story or, or, or convey big themes and uh, ideas in in a relatively sparse the land landscape with not too many uh, their sort of characters um but you know create a very sort of powerful and and sort of grossing you know story you know very moving at at their times um you know but but sort of do it in a way where you're you know you're not you're not not having to be, you know, sledge sledgehammered by um by sort of bomb bomb sort of bast or 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 sort of visuals or you know fast moving sort of plots or um or or sort of you know cheap sort of thrills either you know it's not yeah, yeah. it's not you know it's not not a lot of violence or sort of action or or things like that. Yeah, it's just a great, a great film. Great what, film. what was your favorite part about this film? Like, what was the one piece that you really took away with you after you watched it? 
Um, I, <laughs> I think, um, I actually think what what it says to me is a, a need to watch more Japanese films. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitely, um, but I think just the use of the use of landscape, I think, you know, because it was such a, in many ways, and you saw the reeds and, and a lots of movement, but it was so quiet and it was so still. Yeah, and there's not a lot of me, music. I, I, there's not a lot of score. And when there is, it's that really interesting kind of like blend of tribal drums and jazz almost. It really kind of... <laughs> I love... Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 totally, it totally plays against the mood of the film visually, and it just causes that tension yeah. and that disturbing setting, and I, I thought that was great. And for me, I'm yeah. so glad this film was shot in black and white, because it's 1964. It could have been shot in color. In my mind, this film doesn't work in color. This film plays with shadows so well that it could only truly be represented in black and white. And and that's what I like about yeah. this movie. Like you said, not only the landscapes, but like the more confined settings of the hut, of the cave, of the hole. In black and white, it just creates this mood and this atmosphere that just keeps you in this constant state of tension. If that was in color, you wouldn't get that. If anything, it might even feel kind of cheesy. Yeah, 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 definitely. I do get that. I think there is a um there is more of a I'm not gonna say art house feel, but um the the black and white gives it a bit more of a highbrow uh, yeah. their sort of feel as it were, but um adds to the sparseness and like you say and it is quite funny because, you know, the first half of, of the film is probably mostly set in 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 sort of daytime, you mm-hmm. know, so there's lots of light. You know, lots of you know, quite a vivid feel of of these these uh, reeds, and then and then that second half is much more. It is mostly night their time, and um, you know, uh, the the reeds themselves actually work sort of perfectly in in sort of both uh, uh, both sort of times. You know, both sort of times of day. You know, you go from an almost an almost sort of peaceful setting to a very sort of eerie and quite sort of you know quite sort of scary setting. Well, I am so glad that you watched this. I knew that you would dig this just based off the conversations that we've had. If you were to potentially pair this with another film or have like another film that kind of plays in its same wheelhouse, do you have a suggestion of what that film would be? Oh, well, now I did. Yeah, so there was one and uh, there's another uh, um this sort of Japanese film and I do remember watching this. I think probably back in the back in the early 90s maybe um it was shown on on um the sort of television uh, and that is a woman of of the the dunes again i can't i can't talk remember too much about the uh, uh, the sort of technical aspects of it but it's about a a, a the women uh, a woman in in this uh, uh, this sort of village and there there is a visitor who comes to the village and he is there trapped with her um uh, in these uh, dunes down this uh, down this hole, as it were, again another there another Japanese film with with a sort of hole in it. <laughs> yeah, I've actually um, heard this film it's... talked about on the Pure Cinema podcast, which is an American podcast out here with the guys that uh, represent the New Beverly Cinema that Quentin Tarantino owns. I've heard them talk about this, but I've yeah, never uh-huh. sought it out. So that definitely has to go on my must-watch right. list. Yeah, uh-huh. and again, funnily enough, again another film deals with um, a deals pit. with uh, <laughs> a, a, a pet, yes, but 
Um, their sort of sexuality as well. Again, that's another sort of driving um, uh, their sort of theme of that film. But yeah. yeah, I think I think that would be a good sort of pair. Yeah, yeah, definitely looking into. So for me, the film that I'm always reminded of, in a sense, when I think of this film, and I may have mentioned it to you before on our last uh, episode. It's called The Corruption of Chris Miller. It's a Spanish uh, Gialli, directed by Juan Antonio mm-hmm. Bardem. And it's kind of like a proto-slasher yeah. film. There's a, a guy who dresses up like Charlie Chaplin and, and kills people out in the countryside of Spain. And then it involves this mother-in-law character and this daughter whose husband has fled. There's a lot of tension between them. There was some kind of tragedy early on in the daughter's life. And then a handsome young stranger comes into the house and kind of freeloads off of them. And then there's sexual tension between the mother and the daughter. It has very similar themes of like that hypocrisy of how dare you be sexually attracted to this guy the whole time the mother is as well. And just how the whole thing plays out. I can't deny that there is some connection when Juan Antonio Bardem made that film that he was trying to give it the energy and the vibe of Oni Baba because it has a very similar pace. It has a very similar way of framing its characters. Even though it's set in Spain and in a mansion, it feels like they were both kind of woven from the same cloth. So if I had to pair Oni Baba with something, it would be that film, The Corruption of Chris Miller. That makes sense. And we do know that <clears throat> the um uh, uh, they're sort of Italians and 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 the Spanish film film their makers of that time. Um, we're quite happy to, um, you know, pinch pinch things to from other places. To borrow things from so. Japanese films? No. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they would. So that absolutely makes a lot of sense. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, like I like I said to everyone already, find this film, check it out. It is to me one of the most important pieces of Japanese cinema ever made. You know, this and Godzilla. I guess I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, Ian, what do you got coming up on your show in the near future? Um, so, um, Roger Corman. Um, oh, nice. So, doing three films um, produced by him. Um, so, that is actually coming up, and with our friend um, there, Chris, actually, from from the um, their cult, cult film, uh, companion. Their Companion. So, yeah. there, he's coming on uh, there to do that. <laughs> Um, after that, I'm then looking at um, um, uh, Italian ripoffs by by the master of that, uh, uh, Mr. Bruno Mattai. Nice. Um, <laughs> so three of his films, which will be good fun. Um, there is a there is a, a epic western, which I'll be there. Uh, they're sort of covering soon as well. So, uh, and as you know, Antonio, uh, I'm just um, yeah planning that one out at the moment. But they're going to be covering lots of different uh, things in in that. So, excellent. Yeah, I got Chris coming on sometime soon as well. So yeah, always a pleasure having you on. I can't wait to get back on your show one of these days. Give me a holler. We'll have another one of those cult film connections. Those were a lot of fun. But yeah, so. Yeah. Um, you can find links to Ian's show on my website, thecultworthy.com, in the Cultworthy Partners section. You can find his show pretty much on all listening platforms. 
you're really active on Twitter, so seek him out on Twitter. He's always got some fun suggestions <laughs> and pictures of Franco Nero as Jesus. So <laughs> uh, every Sunday, every Sunday, the Franco Nero comes out every Sunday. Well, once again, this was a cult worthy classic. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and my reviews on Letterboxd. This was a fun one, Ian. I will talk to you very, very soon. And everyone else, have a great week.